I'm joined now by journalist at The Sun, Jacob Jaffa, uh, who will explain what we think is going on now. So, so Jacob, you know, these banging noises, I think it very much depends on the interpretation, whether this is considered to be a positive development or whether it's considered to be, as the Rear Admiral, who was my first guest on the programme at four o'clock, said, a red herring. I wonder what you think. Yeah, we've, we've seen a number of these interpretations uh, that it does seem like some people are hopeful. There's a, a friend of Hamish Harding, one of the passengers on board called Chris Brown, who said that these sorts of banging noises at 30 minute intervals are exactly the sort of thing his friend would come up with to signal that the people on board are alive. But then we have some quite prominent experts in the field, as you've mentioned, saying, you know, there would be Morse code or there would be more regular or anything like that, suggesting that it could just be mechanical noise, it could be noise from the wreckage. There's all sorts of noises under the ocean which we can't detect and distinguish from one another. Can you tell me about the vessel that's arriving from France? What the point is of this? It's meant to have, isn't it, particularly sophisticated sonar equipment on board. Is this why President Macron sent, sent the vehicle over, the vessel? Yes, that's the case. I, I believe it's called the Victor 6000, is, is the remote operated vessel that they're going to be sending down. Um, it, it, the, one of the main things about it is, as you say, quite advanced sonar equipment. We've been monitoring sonar from the surface so far, but now we can actually send down a vessel which can go to the seafloor and look around for uh, any signs of life. It's obviously not manned, and so that gives it the advantage of being able to be down there for probably a bit longer. And also it uh, has a, ca a capacity to recover vehicles and clear wreckage. So if, as some have speculated, the, the submersible is stuck in the wreckage of the Titanic, it could go about clearing that away and start to bring it to the surface. Uh, and, and so the, one of the issues with the French vessel is how long it's going to take to arrive. And, and we know now, don't we, that we're talking about, we hope, kind of best-case scenario, about 20 hours left of breathable oxygen, something around that, that number. When is the French vessel supposed to get there? Yes, time is very much not on the side of the rescue effort. The French vessel, as I believe one of your previous guests mentioned, is scheduled to arrive this evening, maybe in the middle of the night, and then it could take up to two hours to prepare it to go down and then another several hours for it to go down, search around and recover anything if there is anything to recover. Uh, so if the people in that submersible are still alive and the pressure hull hasn't failed or anything like that, then it could still be a very short window of time that that vessel going down actually has to be able to recover it. So even as I'm talking to you now, Jacob, what is going on there? Explain the kind of extensive um, manoeuvres that are being undergone now just to try to locate this tiny little craft, the size of a small minivan. It's so very small, isn't it? In this huge, unforgiving ocean, in one of the most difficult parts of the entire world. So, so, so what's going on as well, as I'm talking to you now, what's going on out there? Well, it's a, it's a huge international effort at the moment. There's been involvement from the Coast Guards and the military of the US, Canada. Uh, our government's been providing support, so has obviously the French government. The, the predominant method of searching so far has been having military aircraft fly over and dropping sonar devices into the water to try and uh, pick up any signs of life, and that's how they've picked up these noises. And then, obviously, the French vessel 
is arriving as we speak, it's in transit. And so it, it's a huge effort, but as you say, it's a, a tiny submersible, it's about 22 feet long, it weighs about 10 tonnes, and if it has reached the seafloor and has reached the wreckage of the Titanic, it could be 12,000 feet under the water, which is no vessel has ever been recovered from that sort of depth successfully before. I mean, I, as I say, my first guest was a rear admiral who spent most of his life, as he said, underwater in submarines, military submarines, obviously. Um, and, and, and he talked about the fact that there didn't seem to have been a backup plan here so that when these five incredibly well-heeled, experienced, actually, adventurers and travellers and divers and everything else got into that vehicle, they must have known they were paying £250,000 and there wasn't a backup plan. Um, does that astound you as you're covering this story? Yeah, it is quite shocking. There, there have been some quite difficult questions posed about the, the safety measures in play with this journey. The, the vessel itself is quite basic. It's, it's basically just a tube made of metal with a few seats, a large window, and then some controls. Uh, the people inside are bolted in from the outside so they can't sort of emerge from it. Obviously, they wouldn't be able to at this depth anyway. But as we're showing on the, the screen now, it's controlled by something which looks rather like a video game controller and is, is a sort of reinforced version of that. It's a very basic setup. In fact, Chris Brown, the, the friend of Hamish Harding, who I mentioned earlier, has spoken to The Sun and said that he actually uh, was scheduled to go on this trip. He signed up alongside Mr Harding in 2016, but pulled out over safety fears. And so there have, have been questions about, you know, there was no recovery vehicle on board the, the ship that took this submersible to its location. It's quite a way out. It's about 40 miles off the coast of Canada, and it's very deep. So there have been questions about were adequate safety measures put in place and, and was there a backup plan if anything went wrong? And it doesn't appear that that's the case. What about questions being asked, Jacob, about very wealthy adventurers commandeering vehicles, vessels, whether it's space rockets, whether it's submarines or, or submersibles or, you know, vessels and vehicles that normally when used are not just military grade, but sort of military grade and beyond. So if you think of the sorts of rockets that NASA sent into space, if you think of the sorts of submarines that the Royal Navy uses, those kinds of things. But these are totally different level machines um, commandeered by very, very wealthy people who are seeking adventure. We know about, you know, the, the, the billionaires, the millionaires who've been into space. We know about William Shatner of Star Trek going into space. We know about now in great detail about these adventurers down in this submersible. Have there been questions asked now about whether this is a state of affairs that really must be much more carefully examined and possibly shouldn't be allowed to continue? I, I think there's a, a key distinction to be drawn between someone like Jeff Bezos, who has demonstrably no experience as an astronaut going to space um, and people like this who yes are very wealthy individuals but also many of them extremely experienced explorers at least four of them uh, obviously a, a teenage boy is not going to be an experienced explorer but at least four of them have uh, a significant background in this stuff hamish harding has three guinness world records related to exploring uh, shazada darwood is a is a i believe a sponsor of the explorers club the pilot down there has done these sorts of missions before and these sorts of manned missions, 
or not necessarily by this company and with this exact craft, these sorts of manned missions down to the Titanic have occurred before. And so it, while it's dangerous, I don't know if it's quite the same thing as uh, the owner of Amazon or uh, a Star Trek actor being blasted into space. I suppose, though, you know, people will be thinking, first of all, they'll be praying that these, these individuals are going to be all right, that somehow or other we're going to get the miracle that the entire world is waiting for with bated breath, that they will be located, they will be found, they will be able to uh, unseal uh, the submersible and they will be alive inside. And, and, and my God, doesn't everybody want, want that to happen? But I wonder if sort of concurrently is running a sort of underlying thread of thought, which is, my God, how many different countries are having to deploy such expenses, resources, how many um, kind of robotic craft are having to be sent down, how many people are having to be doing so many different things, not to mention all the worry, the anxiety and everything else generated by, let's put it this way, an excursion that didn't have to happen effectively a pleasure cruise, really, to just go and have a look at the look at the kind of ruins of the Titanic and come up again, and and now almost the whole world's involved in it. I don't know whether anybody's thinking along the lines of you know this never had to happen in the first place. Well, predominantly, of course, we're all just hoping that everyone in that submersible is okay and will be found. It would be a real miracle mm. if they pulled it off. But as as you say, there have been a lot of very expensive resources deployed on this, and I think it may become an area which is now scrutinised a lot more heavily, possibly regulated more heavily. And, and so to ensure that if anything like this happens again, and if it's going to start being commercially available, because when these things become commercial, they are always experienced by the wealthiest first, and then they become cheaper and more available. Uh, if that's going to happen, there will have to be safety regulations, there will have to be procedures put in place. So if anything like this could potentially happen again, and we really hope it doesn't, mm. that there is an instant response that uh, the the craft can be recovered before it starts to sink deeper, and then obviously these international efforts won't have to be needed. It's interesting, I think, I don't know what you feel as a seasoned journalist, Jacob, but you know, when a story captures the imagination of the world in this way, people start to make links between the story and human nature and why it is that we respond so, so vividly, so, so vigorously to this story, feeling so concerned about people we don't know, feeling so overawed by the kind of majesty and, and, and nature of the, of, the, um, of the ocean, you know, those sorts of things. And people are saying various things, for example, that this appeals to a part of human nature which is predicated on a desire for exploring, for adventure, to, you know, follow in the footsteps of Vasco da Gama, Christopher Columbus, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and also that there's an almost universal fascination bordering on an obsession with the Titanic, which is also come to seem to be part of human nature, that, you know, we're born, we're obsessed by the Titanic, and we want to kind of push the boundaries and borders of our experience to explore, to find adventure in a way to, to wrestle with the elements. And I don't know whether, as a journalist, you think that that is part of the appeal and the enormous fascination and also kind of underlying horror of this, this unfolding story. I think certainly, as we've seen with all these sorts of explorations throughout history, whether it be, you know, the big ones like the moon landing and, and everything like that, there is that real sense of pushing into the unknown and uh, to infinity and beyond, to quote Buzz Lightyear. Mm. But uh, 
that sort of thing, it, it just captures the imagination, as you as you say. And then coupled with that, the fact that so much of the ocean is untouched and unexplored, you know, we, we can't even really conceive of how deep and vast the ocean is below what we see on our coastlines or in nature documentaries. And so that sense of the unknown is even more heightened and we start to feel that real attraction to these sorts of, of stories. And that's why, as you say, it, it captures people's imagination so much and, and really you see stories like this as a journalist come along and they just blow up beyond belief and everything centres around it. Jacob, thank you very much indeed for joining us and of course we are all praying 